You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2016. Today's episode is titled Testing. In a world driven by the perceived need for comfort, pleasure, and convenience, there is little tolerance for trials and tribulations. These tests of life seem to find us even when we seek to avoid them. We can be tested in many ways, mentally, emotionally, relationally, financially, and competitively, just to name a few. Management must be prepared to properly view and respond to individual and organizational testing as tools of development and maturity. When a test arises, management should respond by encouraging metaphysical awareness. This means seeking God's perspective and purpose for the test. It is critical both individually and organizationally to gain God's perspective so the test can be properly understood and the lessons properly learned. A wise response to the test will facilitate individual and organizational development that will contribute to outstanding performance and service to all stakeholders. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Testing. Well, good morning. We're talking this morning about uh, the book of James. Uh, This is our second session, and we're going to cover James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And the topic for this morning is testing of our faith. And I think it's important that we're clear that when James is talking in this very short passage about testing, uh, while it impacts us physically, mentally, emotionally, the real test here is the testing of our faith. And faith is another word for worldview. It's t- testing what we claim to believe to be true about God and how God works. And let me just add that as you uh, to understand this, I think you've got to understand that your view of God drives your philosophy of life. And out of your philosophy of life, you embrace values that are consistent with that philosophy. And from those values comes principles that you believe you need to, to apply. And from principles come practices that you actually do. And what happens with the things that you do is you get results. You get consequences from the things you do. So all of these things are connected back to theology. And God is into testing our theology. That is what he does. And he does it for our good. It's not for evil. So let me just read this text. This is um, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect or complete work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So just some words of introduction here before we talk about the specifics of the text. Um, The audience, remember, is dispersed Jewish people, and they were dispersed as a result of their disobedience, that is, their ancestors' disobedience, hundreds of years before this particular time. This letter is being written sometime in the first century. Many scholars believe in the 40s. Some would say it's a little later. But generally, it's early on in Christianity. Uh, the These people that he's writing to are all Jewish people, and Jewish people, by custom, were well-trained in the Scripture. The Scripture to them was the Old Testament. They were highly trained from the, their youngest age to think biblically and to look at Scripture for answers. So scriptural knowledge is assumed in this book. And that really, I think, explains the style of this book. 
This particular book is very much like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It is very practical. It's focused on the principles and the practices and to some degree the values. There's very little said about the theology that's undergirding it or even the philosophy of Christianity. The the key here is to understand that that is all assumed. It's kind of like when you are talking with someone that you know is highly theologically trained, we don't have to go into a lot of theological discussion before I can I can make application because I'm assuming that we know the same things theologically and now we can focus on the application. And that's what he's doing here. This is a focus on the application of sound biblical thinking about God, sound theology, and a sound view of Christianity. And now let's talk about the implications of that. How do we live? So as we go through this book, we see a number of major themes here that he's going to focus on. And, for example, personal integrity, that is a huge theme. True wisdom, recognizing true wisdom from false wisdom. Pride. Pride arguably is the seminal sin. And you could argue that it's the sin from which all other sins flow. So, obviously, pride is is a huge impediment, and it plays out in just virtually every area of life. He talks about money, uh, the proper view of money, and the dangers of money. He talks about the tongue and the fact that the tongue is a very powerful tool in our body, and we've got to use it properly. He talks about the return of Christ and patience for waiting for that. And the reason that's important is because in early, the first century Christianity, the Christians were persecuted. In fact, in the Roman culture of the first century, and, and indeed up until the fourth century, Christianity was the only worldview that was not acceptable. Every other worldview was acceptable except Christianity. So Christianity alone was persecuted. It was singled out. And if you're tuning in to the culture of today, you probably are noticing that that same phenomenon is beginning to happen. Uh, of all worldviews out there, all are acceptable except Christianity. He also talks about physical healing and the, the role of God in that and how he functions. That will be an interesting discussion when we get there. and probably be surprising to you when you start really looking at what the text actually says. The beauty of, uh, you know, that, that what we're going to do is we're going to, as we go through this book, we're going to look at the Greek language some, not in great detail, but enough to draw out some of the nuances that are in the original text that don't come through well in the English translation. And when we get to the physical healing discussion in chapter five, you'll see what I'm talking about. And then there was going to be, there's a great discussion in the book about the law and how we are still accountable to the law. And he assumes that you understand it's your accountability to the law is not to establish your acceptance with God. No, it's to validate the reality that you really are saved and you've been accepted. So this is a book about sanctification, which means that he has implicitly in his theology an understanding of what I call the three tenses of salvation. The past tense of salvation is you know, coming to Christ and being acceptable with God based on the work of Christ alone. So when you are regenerated, you're brought into that relationship. The present tense of salvation is now the sanctification that goes on in our, while we live the rest of this life. You know, post coming, post being regenerated, now the work of sanctification is the work of the Spirit in us to transform us 
to where we live in alignment with our profession, our position in Christ. And that's one of the ways that we're, we validate the reality that we truly do know Christ and we have been born again is that we are growing and changing and becoming progressively more like Christ. Sanctification literally means to become more holy or more like Christ. And then the third, third tense of salvation is the future tense, which has to do the ultimate glorification, which happens when we transition from this existence to the next, and then the fullness of salvation will be realized. So salvation, biblically, is very much a process. We tend to think of it as an event. We tend to want to identify a point in time when something happened to us, and we profess Christ, and now we are born again, and now we are a Christian, and we tend to kind of leave it there. And that, to me, is a truncated understanding of salvation, and it's based on a truncated gospel, an incomplete gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, which was Jesus' gospel, was the gospel about the rule and reign of Christ. And he is touching certain ones of us and regenerating us and then empowering us become agents of transformation by transforming us. And so our role is to go out there and be his agents to advance his kingdom in accordance with the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So that's the more robust, I think, more accurate biblical way to see what this is all about. And for us to play our roles, to find the purpose of God for our lives, and to do it well, we have to grow and mature in Christ. So this is why with the C4 principle, for example, that we teach in SLA, that the character element is so vital. While you have to be called, that's important, and you need to have capability, and you need to be commissioned, those are important, Character is the greatest. It's the greatest component. You don't have godly character. You're not maturing and growing in godly character. It will be a block for you. You will not be able to get untracked with what God has created you to do, and you will not fulfill your destiny, which you will be, you're held accountable to do that. So it's critical that we grow in Christ. And you know, it's interesting how in the New Testament, it doesn't really give us the option to do anything else. You, if you read James, you read Peter, you read Paul, over and over again, you see there is this tremendous emphasis on growing up in Christ. If you're not growing up in Christ, there is no scripture that I know of that gives you assurance that you really are saved. And that's startling. That's one of those things that most church leaders don't want to deal with. They don't want to face that reality. But that seems to be the testimony of scripture. Jesus said it very clearly. You know, that by their fruit you will know them. He also, you know, gave that stern warning that at the end, when he when he comes back, there will be many people that will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. Not that I, I don't know you, I never knew you. And you can look that up in the Greek language and see that is exactly what the text says. I never knew you. And then you say, wow. These people are going to respond surprised because they're going to say, well, gee, we healed people. We cast out demons. We went on mission trips. You know, we did all the stuff. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, you did the stuff, but you lacked one thing. And that one thing was you didn't do the will of the Father. You can do the stuff. Just like the Egyptian magicians in the time of Moses counterfeited many of his acts Many of the, remember the plagues that, that were, that came upon the Egyptians, the counterfeiters were able to counterfeit many of those acts. 
because that God gives Satan some level of power to do that. And so we're going to have in the Christian professing Christian community people who counterfeit, people who claim to be believers, but they're really not, and they will do things that will be impressive. They will do signs and wonders. But Jesus says that's not the test. The test is obedience. Obedience to the will and ways of God. That's the test. So as you look at the very high bar that's set by Jesus, by Peter, by Paul, and now by James, I think it's pretty clear that the only proper way to live as a professing Christian is to truly be engaged in growing and maturing in Christ, finding the purpose of God for your life, doing the purpose of God for your life. And one of the key elements for all of this is testing. Testing is what validates the genuineness of someone's profession. It's the testing of their belief about God, their worldview that flows from that belief. Now, one of the introductory comment is uh, James is a book of imperatives. In the Greek language, there's actually a specific mood called the imperative mood. In English, we don't really have an imperative mood. You know, we have an active mood. Uh, you know, we have a, a indicative mood, uh, and we have we have other moods like a subjunctive mood, but we don't really have an imperative mood that's represented by a specific grammatical style. You know, you can tell the imperative mood in English by by the inflection of the voice or by the intensity of the voice. But in the Greek language, you didn't have to use the intensity of your voice. Basically, you you were able to convey the imperative mood by virtue of the the way that you structured the grammar. So the verbs themselves contain, you know, the clues as to what mood it is. In this particular epistle, there are some 60 imperatives, mostly the imperative mood. There are a few that are implied. They're indicative mood, but they're clearly implied to be imperatives. But the vast majority of these 60-some-odd imperatives are the expressions of the imperative mood in the Greek language. So this is interesting on a lot of levels because this is really a book of do's and don'ts. And I know we make a big deal out of Christianity is not do's and don'ts. Well, that's correct in one sense. It's not do's and don'ts to be acceptable with God. That's correct. But it's not correct in the sense that, you know, after you've come to Christ, you can do whatever you want to do. No, you, the Christianity has specific ways in which we are to live and conduct our lives. And so this is a book about these ways we're to live and conduct our lives. So he's going to start out here talking first and foremost about trials. Clearly, trials were a big issue back then because Christians were persecuted. It's hard for us to identify that because most of us haven't suffered much persecution in our lives for our our profession of faith in Christ. But back then, you made a profession of faith in Christ. There was a high probability that you were going to die. In fact, a witness for Christ, in the Greek language, the word witness was the word marte, and we get the English word martyr, and we know what that means. A martyr is someone who has sacrificed his life for some cause. So basically the Christians of that day, that early first century, had the mindset that coming to Christ, they had to be willing to die. And that is a high, high, high bar that most of us don't have a clue how to walk in. So let's just look at the uh, the text here uh, very briefly. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, 
this whole idea of count it all joy, this is the first imperative. Now, this is not actually the imperative mood. It's an implied imperative. But it's telling us that we should we should deem this experience that we call trials, exeem it something joyful. Now, it's not that the trial is going to be pleasant or easy. That's not the way to see this. The way to see this is to recognize there's something metaphysically going on here. And when I say metaphysical, I mean beyond the natural. God is at work in this trial to do something that's really going to be beneficial to us. So that's the basis for this joy. We rejoice. We are thankful for the fruit that this particular situation or circumstance is going to produce. Now, you know, there are all kinds of trials in life. And when you start thinking about, wow, in fact, the word here that uh, says various trials is a, is a word that literally means various sorts or types. So you sit down and start thinking about, well, what are some examples of trials? Well, you might have relational trials. You might have conceptual trials, executional trials. You might have trials of your character, the integrity of your character. Your patience may be tried. You have financial trials, cultural trials, you know, where maybe worldly wisdom is putting pressure on you. You have pressure, peer pressure, pressure to conform to the standards of the world, political correctness trials. You may have calamities, storms, fires, maybe criminal activity, acts of war, terrorism. You might have judicial trials. You might have people coming at you unjustly for various things. There's all kinds of ways that we can be tested. But every one of these tests is intended by God to transform us, to complete us, to perfect us. So he goes on in the next verse here in uh, verse 3 and says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, patience is a very interesting word when you start looking at that word. Uh, patience is, is a uh, compound word in the Greek language, hupo mone, and hupo means under, mone means to place. So the, the idea is to be placed under. So the implication here is that you didn't place yourself, you know, under this situation. God has orchestrated it. Now this doesn't mean that maybe you're not, you know, the trial couldn't come from natural consequences of some actions that you've made. That could very well happen. But the point is God is in it. God is always in these situations to do what it is he wants to do to reveal things in us. Now, as we recognize that this testing, this testing is of your faith, that means it's of your worldview. We all make a profession of faith in Christ, which now that profession of faith defines a theology, which now defines our philosophy of life, our paradigm of Christianity. And the more pure that our paradigm of Christianity is, the more more pure our faith in God is, then the more soundly we are walking with God. And so, well, how do we know that reality is indeed in play? Well, God knows. He doesn't have to have a test to see that. So the test is largely about us. It's about showing us where we really are. It's uh, it's the whole idea of, of uh, that Dennis talks about in his last teaching in BLS 200 about the green light. Uh, whenever you make an I statement, you're saying I believe in something or you're boasting about something you claim to believe in, you make that I declaration, the game is on. You've opened the door for the test. 
And so God sets up those tests to say, okay, let's test that eye decoration. And uh, just a little comment on that. Uh, anytime we're, we're singing in uh, any kind of Christian context and, and we start singing eye decorations, it causes me to drop on my knees, sometimes just spiritually, sometimes literally, because I'm saying, Lord, as I'm saying to you that I love you, I'm asking for the grace to love you. As I'm saying that I will always be true to you, I'm asking for the grace to do that. Because I realize, uh, I, you know, I'm weak. I'm very weak. And it doesn't matter how long you've known Christ and how mature you think you are, we're all weak. And so we desperately need continuing empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be able to walk faithfully with God. So when we have a test, we've got to be quick to run to God. Say, Lord, give me the grace for this test. Give me the grace to grow through it. And thank you for the test. Thank you for the opportunity to grow. So this is the Christian perspective of how to view some kind of test of, and tests of all types. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, but let patience have its perfect work. Now, this is a very interesting way to phrase this because it personifies patience. Personification is when you attribute to a to a, a, an animal or to an object, human traits. So it, it's like patience has the trait of being able to perform work like a human being could perform work. In fact, that, in fact, that word work there is the word ergon. It's the common Greek word for work. So it's saying let patience have its complete or perfect work. And that word perfect there is, it comes from teleon, which is, or teleos, that is the Greek word for completion or that which accomplishes its purpose. So patience is intended here to do a complete work in us. And there's a little play on words here now with the rest of the uh, the verse. It says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, he uses teleos again to talk about what God is trying to do in us. So this work of patience, for it to be complete in us, is to produce completeness in us and to bring holism inside out. So this word for complete in the second phrase here is a word that refers to complete in all its parts or entire or whole. Perhaps it's a reference to internal sanctification, and perhaps the word teleos used in this second phrase referring to us might be referring to you know completion of our external purpose. So I think the word the two words there you know, suggest both internally and externally we are complete, being completed so we can run the race and do what it is that God put us here to do. So that's the whole point of trials and tribulations to enable us to do that, to run our race and to run our race well. Now I want to talk just a bit about the theology that's revealed here. I mentioned to you the tenses of salvation and the focus on this book is on the second tense of salvation, which is the present tense, and that is sanctification. And in sanctification, we have we have this mysterious work of the sovereign hand of God working to transform us. At the same time, we are responsible to be obedient to what God reveals to us and what he empowers us to do. So this book is really about human responsibility. The focus on the book is on what we do. Now, you would be misreading the book to think that James is trying to get a, give a complete theology on sanctification or a complete theology on salvation. He's not trying to do that. He assumes you already know that. 
And he's simply emphasizing things that I think were very relevant to them at that time, given the circumstances of their life. And the relevant thing was they were persecuted, and they understood very little about how to properly perceive obedience. Obedience is not about being acceptable with God, but it's about demonstrating that you have been accepted by God. And so it's still our requirement. There was probably a lot of conversation going on at that time about what role the law has in salvation. And so he's going to make it clear it's still here. The law is not done away with. We have a movement today in our culture called hyper grace that, that wants to say the law is gone. It's done away with. It's over. We don't have to obey the law anymore. Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, the law is no longer the basis on which we are expected to obey to get, you know, be acceptable with God. That is true. Galatians makes that very clear. But the law is still a, a record of revelation about God and how who he is and how he works and therefore how we are to work. So our sanctification does involve obedience to the law which is why there is our imperatives. Now, be clear, we're not talking about literal, the Old Testament law, which was written for a slightly different purpose. We're talking about now the law that Christ is talking about. Remember the Great Commission, what we call the Great Commission. There are two things that we're told to do in making disciples. Number one is we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And baptism is an act of recognizing who is it the Holy Spirit's regenerated? And the second thing is to train them to obey the commands of Christ. So obedience to the commands of Christ is obedience to principles, to commandments that God has put in Scripture. The commands of Christ are voluminous. You start trying to list them, you, you run into hundreds of them. In fact, I've seen some studies where you know, they're put, they, they've gone through Scripture to try to pick out the commands of Christ just in the New Testament. And I'm seeing counts over five, 600 commands that people are finding. And they try to categorize them and sort them and all that kind of stuff to try, to try to get some handle on it. It's just, it's a vast number of commands. In this book alone, in James alone, something like 60 commands are given to us, most of them in the imperative mood saying, this is what you do. This is how you live as a believer. So we have responsibility to step up. But that in no way changes the reality of how we're brought to Christ and the reality that our standing with Christ is first and foremost based on the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. Nor does it change the sovereignty of God in this whole process of causing us to mature and grow. So all of this means that we have to be very metaphysically aware of what God is doing. When I use the word metaphysical, I'm talking about thinking beyond the tangible to thinking about how God works and what he's doing. So metaphysical awareness is seeing things from God's perspective, understanding what he's about, his agenda, his purpose, his will, his ways. We've got to see at that level for us to really recognize what God is doing through circumstances, through testing, and through trials in life. So metaphysical awareness is absolutely essential to growing and maturing as a believer. Well, finally, let me just make a few comments about application here. Uh, there are many, many examples of testing in Scripture and the value of testing, how it really produces good things. A test is something that God does with the intent of perfecting us. 
So the intent is that we will pass the test. But if we fail the test, God is the consummate teacher. We'll just give us the test again, usually in another form. So he wants us to pass. So there are many examples of tests that have been given uh, and many that have passed it very well. For example, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, Isaac, who was the son of promise. And that tested Abraham. He's thinking, how can I sacrifice my son, and yet my son is my heir? That doesn't work. And he went through a long reasoning process, and Hebrews 11 gives us a record of that where he concluded that God could even raise from the dead. So he became the peace that he could obey God and sacrifice his son, and God could raise his son so his son could fulfill the promise that God had made to him. So that was a test of a divine promise. You may have a divine promise from God about something that you are you are very settled in your heart and your mind, and the people you're walking with have agreed, and your commissioning agents have agreed and said, yes, this is what God's going to do in your life, and then God will test that promise. And it's not about God. It's about you. It's about you trusting God. So that's an example of a test. Another example of a test is a calling. When Paul and Silas were called to go to Philippi, you know, to preach the gospel there, and they wound up in jail, unjustly uh, treated, unjustly arrested, unjustly convicted, you know, and they wind up in jail. And, you know, you and I would probably be sitting down there in jail saying, God, did you forget about us? Do you realize what's happened here? And they're not there. They are there praising God, giving thanks in the midst of the trial because they know God is in this to do something. They don't know what. In time, they did see what, but initially they didn't know what. So that calling to go to Philippi was tested, and they passed it beautifully. You may be tested like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, where they were tested with the culture of political correctness. Were they going to bend the knee to political correctness or not? And, of course, they passed the test. Basically, the king says, are you going to do what I said or not? You're going to, when I, when I, the sound goes out to bow down and worship the idol I've erected, you're going to do it or not? And basically, they said, nope, we're not going to do it. And our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to do it. So they were not putting a demand on God to deliver them. They knew he could, but they didn't know if he would or not, and they were okay either way. Now, that is a great, great place to be where it doesn't matter. Whatever God chooses, I'm I'm with him. Life or death, it's in his hands. And then there's a testing, for example, of prodigal children. All of us, you know, that have children, you will probably have prodigal children at some point in time. And you have to be willing and able to trust God with the prodigal children. And I can tell you, my children have and still display some prodigal traits. Sometimes that can be very, very challenging. It's a test. We need to thank God. Thank God that he is going to work a good thing in us. Transform us through this test. May we have grace to pass the test. Some of you may be tested by money. And we know that the rich man, it's difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom. So you've got to have great maturity to manage wealth. So don't ask for wealth. Ask for maturity. As you get maturity, God may choose to give you wealth. But if you get wealth, you know this, you're just a steward. And so that can be a huge test. Or you might be tested by obedience to a divine directive. You know, Peter said, you know, when he saw Jesus walking on the water, said, bid me to come to you. Jesus said, come on, Peter. Peter went out there. 
He, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he walked on the water. A minute, as soon as he started looking at the circumstances, the wind and the waves, the storm, he sank. And that's, that's an example of failing the test. But then the test was, are you going to call out for help? He did. And when he did, Jesus picked him up. So he passed that test. So he passed the test, failed the test, and then he passed the test. So many times that can be a number, number of tests stringing together. And we have to have the grace to be able to deal with each one of those tests. So these can be divine directives, commandments of Scripture that we know and we're trying to obey. And so the challenge is, can we trust God in the midst of those divine directives as we're tested with obedience, with our requirement to obey those directives? So there's just powerful Scripture that points out over and over again the importance of learning how to see trials biblically and recognize that the testing of our faith is a good thing. God is working good. He's always working good, and good means alignment with him. It's not alignment with us. It's not tickling our itches. It's about transforming us into alignment with his son. So Lord, may the Lord give us all grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and become mature, complete, and to find and fulfill the purpose for which he's created us. So we will indeed do what he's called us to do according to his will and his ways for his glory. So, Lord, let that be for each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen.